Well, good morning again, Rock Hill. It is good to see you today. Glad you are with us. If you have your Bible, you can open them up to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. We've been walking verse by verse through the book of Esther, and uh, we are excited to be in this portion of the text today. Now, we've had had one child, and we were at the hospital having our second child, which makes me an expert on that moment, okay? Uh, But our second child was born, and when uh, she came out of the womb, I just noticed that uh, her pigmentation was just a a little bit off from where uh, our first child was, and and it just simply was that there was something that was wrong. And I I just knew it in my spirit. Something's off. Something's not right. I don't know what it is, and I'm not an expert in this area, but I have had one child, so I know, hey, something's not right. Right. The nurses look at one another, and then they look at me and say, sir, uh, if you'll just give us a moment. They said, dad, dad, if you'll just give us a moment, uh, let us check everything out and make sure everything is okay. And I knew, uh-oh, something is not right. In that moment, it seemed like 42 hours, but it's probably only 10 to 30 seconds. It just seemed like an eternity as they we're looking at her and, and kind of making sure everything was okay. And, and all of a sudden, she began to breathe again. And I of sigh of relief and their voice. When, when the nurses do that, you know, oh boy, this was serious. And then we grab her. And, and soon after that, we were able to go home uh, next day or so and, and enjoy our new bundle of energy. And so, <laughs> as a parent, many of us have been in those situations where we just want to protect and provide for our children, and sometimes we're in moments where we go from this extreme joy and excitement, and then it transitions all of a sudden to grief and fear and anxiety, and we experience this all in a matter of moments. It wasn't hours of transition of great thrill and joy of a new child into the earth to great fear and anxiety, and then all the way back up to joy again. There's something in us as parents that Long to protect and provide for our children. That's not an uncommon thing. In fact, I I think that's a God thing. I think God has wired us to want to protect and to provide and to care for those that have been entrusted to us. I I think God has wired us for that very thing. And and any policy or any person who's anti that would, would be somebody who's going against the way God has wired us. Now, I say all that because... In the Bible, God has this desire, and he's made this decision to adopt people into his family. The the word we use theologically is called covenant. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with a particular people. He didn't make it with all people in the Old Testament. He made it with a particular people, and that was the Jews. God made this covenant, and the, the simplest way I could define covenant is that God chooses to adopt this people as his own And promises by saying something like this, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, thanks be to God that when the Messiah came, who really is the point of the covenant. The point of the covenant was that God was going to bring about the Messiah who would then become the savior of the world and allow others to be invited into this covenant. So now we live in this New Testament world, if you will, or post-New Testament. And the reality is that you and I, even though you may not be a Jew by descent, have an opportunity to become part of God's adoptive family whom he promises to protect, to love, and to care for. 
So when we're reading in this book, the book of Esther, we see the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God provide and protect for his children. And we're going to see how that can be translated to our everyday lives. So if you have your Bibles, you've opened your apps, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be at Esther chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Now remember, just before we get there, there's been two storylines. We started this last week. Esther has a storyline, and now we've got Haman's storyline. They've just had dinner, the first dinner together, where Esther is prepping to ask the big question to redeem her people. And here we are in verse 9 of chapter 5. If you're there, will you say word? That day, Haman left full of joy and in good spirits, but... But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage against Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials, kind of lying, but in the royal staff. Verse 12, what's more, Haman added. Watch this. Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. But watch this. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and his Friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. I'd like to describe Haman like this. Haman is a hot mess. Haman goes from this roller coaster of feeling good to feeling bad. He has just left a banquet. He's personally invited. And you say, well, well, we don't need to give him too much of a hard time. Listen, if if you got a phone call right now, and our phones are getting smarter. You've seen your phone where it says potential spam. Does your phone do that? I'm so thankful for technology. It says potential spam, and I just ignore it. Then they leave a voicemail on somebody who I really need to talk to. But potential spam, right? (laughs) But just think for a second, just imagine with me, if on your phone it said number 45, President Trump. And you look at that and go, this has got to be a scam, but I'm going to answer it anyway. You answer that phone, and this is not a political statement, it's just a moment of fact, that if the president calls you and you hear that very distinct voice, and he says, hello, that's the best I can do. And I want to have dinner with you. Just you, me, and my wife. And you go, I, I guess this is spam. Maybe this is a big event that you're doing. Is, is there like a, you're needing some money? I, what's going on here? And he says, no, no, no. I just want to have dinner with you and your, just you and you're going to have dinner with me and my, my wife. It'll be huge. Be huge. I'm sorry. Okay. It'll be huge. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You, I'm sorry. 
Back on track. Back on track. You may not even have Twitter, but you would open a Twitter account so you could tweet about it, right? You may not have Instagram, but you would, you would figure Instagram out so you could take pictures of, of your event with, with the president, the most important position within our government, seemingly. This per- you were the only one invited. You would feel like Haman. You'd, you'd kind of stick your check, chest out like, like a rooster and, and just kind of be really confident about yourself. But then all of a sudden, Haman is leaving this moment where he's had the highest of highs. He's had dinner with the king over all the other royal officials. He's been invited by the queen and by the king. He is there. And then all of a sudden, he sees Mordecai. Mordecai, for whatever reason, is is the guy that gets under Haman's skin. In in fact, it's Mordecai who is the one that that really helped trigger a lot of this in Haman's life because, because there was this edict that went out that everybody who comes in contact with Haman was supposed to bow down, and it's Mordecai who refuses to do this that then triggers this moment in time to where this edict goes out that the elimination of 15 million Jews was to be enacted. It's, it's the fact that Haman sees this man, and he goes from the most extreme highs to the most lowest of lows. So Haman does what some people like to do. They gather their wife, and they gather their friends, people that they love. And what does Haman do? He, he doesn't have like a, an after party. He, he does to a sense, but he has a speech, and his speech is about how awesome he is. Let me translate this a little bit, because he says that he, he shows off how glorious he is and how many sons he has. This is, this is what he does. He, he invites his wife. I'm surprised he has a wife. He invites his wife, and then he invites his friends. Surprised he has any friends. He invites them over to talk about how many cars he has, how many custom goblets he has. Remember that party from five years ago? He shows off his Persian Picasso. He is like showing off. Look how awesome and important I am. And he shows off his family. He's got pictures everywhere of his family. I, I don't doesn't say how many sons he has, but having sons was an honor in those days, just like it is today. Having healthy children is an honor, period. But, but in that day, it was really important for lineage and bloodline, all these things. That's what he does. I mean, who wants to go to a party like that? I mean, some of us have friends that that's what they do. They like to tell you how important they are. Guess how many likes my Facebook post got? More than you. It's people who at their 40s begin to brag about the UIL competition awards that they got in second grade. You know those people? (laughs) The people who are trying to impress you with what they've done or what they have. They're always talking about their accomplishments and what what they've done. Maybe they even brag about their family and they look how big my family is or look how small my family is or look how important positions my kids have or my grandkids. Haman, instead of losing his cool, invites his friends over to brag about himself because his gods are way too small. His friends try to console him and they give the recommendation. I don't know if your friends try to console you like this, but they say, here's how to solve this. Why don't you just kill Mordecai? Boy, that sounds like a great idea. So they construct overnight, imagine this, overnight, a 75-foot 
gallows, a place to where they can hang Mordecai. Now, just to give a little reference point for you, the temple of Solomon was 30 feet tall. This was over twice the size. These gallows were twice the size of the temple in height. You you say, well, I've never seen a temple. Well, if you look outside, the cross. Now, I did not go out with a measuring tape and measure it. But the blueprints tell us that the cross, the height of the cement, is 48 feet. The gallows are almost twice the cross that's outside of our property. Think about that. Why does he do this? He's wanting to display to everybody from miles away Mordecai hanging in a similar form of like a crucifixion. Haman is so hateful, so full of rage that his friends give him the suggestion. It satisfies him. He says, I have all these things But there's one thing I don't have. I don't have the fear and the trembling of that man. Mordecai's at a place that he just does not care what Haman thinks. Remember, this guy has had the best day ever. He he has had dinner with the king and his wife. He's the only one that's been invited. He has money. He has wealth. He has position. The king is his friend. The the queen likes him to a degree. He, He thinks he is the cat's meow. But he's still not satisfied. Many of us fall into traps like this. We win and we we can't win for winning because things have gone well, but we still find that one thing that wasn't right. And we become hypercritical about these moments. This is similar to what he's walking through. He is obsessed over the imperfection missing from his own life. And it drives him to make some decisions that are dangerous. His solution is to kill. That's always Haman's solution to a problem. Now, mind you, keep this in mind. Let's pick up in chapter 6, verse 1. Watch this now. That night, sleep escaped the king. He couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book recording, daily events to be brought and read to the... They, they found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthan. And Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus, the king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Pause right there real quick. Here's what's going on. The king can't sleep. He, he can't get any rest. So he does what any normal person would do. Why don't you read the daily accounts of everything that happened some time ago? I don't know how you fall asleep, but that very well may be one of them. Read everything that happened in my life. They just so happened to read five years ago, the moment that Mordecai reported to the king that there were two men who were going to assassinate the king. In this Persian culture, honor was big, and so because honor was so big, they they would always show honor to those who maybe protected the king. The king stays alive by blessing those who keep him alive. But they did nothing. There was a clerical error. So the king wants to fix this. Notice there's no time lapse. Look at what verse 4 says. The king asked who is in the court. Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered, and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? 
Now watch this. This shows you some humor in the Bible. Haman thought to himself, mm, for the man the king wants to honor. Oh, excuse me. Who is the king? Who is it that the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, thinking of himself, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the carriage or the charge of the one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man and the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is the one, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for, no, not Haman, Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate, do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse, he clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. All right, you see the humor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off home with his tail between his legs, mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and his, all of his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Haman thinks there's nobody the king wants to honor more than me. Surely I'm the one getting this award. Surely I'm the one getting the new threads. Surely I'm the one going to get the king's car. This is what's going to happen to me. This is what you should do, king. Haman is asked by the king to come. Haman's the only one in the office that early. Haman had an agenda that he wanted to carry out, but it's the Lord's agenda that's going to prevail. He comes in early to the office to ask the king for Mordecai's head. But instead, by God's providence, what's going to transpire is that God's going to honor, not Haman, but Mordecai. The very man Haman wants to kill. Do you see God's inconspicuous providence at work? Did you notice that the day that Mordecai was set to be executed... He had no clue this was going to be carried out. Mordecai has no idea this is going to happen. Mordecai is not given a tip. He's not given a clue. He's not woken up by the Lord. Mordecai is sound asleep. Esther doesn't know this plot either. There's nowhere mentioned that Esther's in on what's going on. Mordecai doesn't know. Esther doesn't know. The king doesn't even know. Haman and his cronies know, and then God knows. You see, sometimes God works through his visible hand of miracles, but most often God works through his invisible hand of providence. That God is orchestrating and working in such a way to save and preserve his covenant with his people. The world describes the providence of God as coincidence. Oh, that's just a coincidence I ran into you. No, no, I, I see God orchestrating and working in a thousand ways of which sometimes we can't even recognize or see. 
God's at work and he's drawing people to himself. I call it providence. God is guiding and working by his inconspicuous providence to work in a way to glorify his name, but also to save and redeem people for their joy. This happened this week. Maybe you've woken up in the middle of the night with somebody burdened on your heart. And you just texted them or reached out to them the next morning and said, hey, I, I woke up in the middle of the night and I just began to pray for you. And then all of a sudden you get information back that it was at that time that something, something was happening. And it doesn't always happen that way, but this week it happened for me. I, I woke up with a burning impression to reach out to somebody. It was before 8 a.m., so it was early. And I just sent a text to this person and said, hey, you came to mind. I paused. I don't know what's going on in your world. Haven't talked to you in some time, but I'm praying for you, and I prayed for you. Thirteen hours later, they texted back, you will not believe what was happening at that exact moment. It doesn't always happen that way, but friend, I'm just telling you, that's how the Holy Spirit works. He's going to bring people to your mind. You, Well, just, I, I don't know what's going on. You should immediately reach out to them. Sometimes God works visibly through miracles, but often he works through invisible guiding of his providence. Can I just tell you that the coming weeks may cause you to have a little bit of anxiety and worry about the future of America, but but I, I just need you to hear me. No matter who the president is or could be, God is ultimately the protector of all things, and he will save his people, the church. He is consistent in doing this and has promised to do so if you've read the rest of the Bible. Is it not true that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world? Is it not true that no matter what Satan or his demons or wicked men or wicked women try to do, they literally have no chance whatsoever against God? Is it not true that God is the ultimate protector of you and of me and that he will tell us in Romans that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God there's nothing and so many of us worry about so many things but do you not believe that God has better plans for you than you do are you not shocked that even he will say that there is not even a sparrow that falls to the ground unless the heavenly father is aware of it Are you not aware that when he says this, Jesus then follows this up to say, and how much more valuable are you? Why are you stressed out? There's nothing that can happen to you that the Father has not allowed to happen for your good and his glory. Even the hard things God has allowed to happen so that you would trust in him. Are you walking through difficulty today? Many of you are. If that's you, you need to realize that, number one, God will often give you too much for you to handle so that you would trust in him. But when you're in those moments, you need to believe that he is with you and will never forsake you. Which means that right now, in this moment, God is protecting you. I I, I don't know what else you got going on this day, but you should be able to sit back and go, God is protecting us. Even when it seems like he's not, even when it seems like he's far away, God is at work. Can I remind you that God is not mentioned in this book? Yet we see his handiwork throughout this book. You may see somebody and you look at their life and say, God's not involved in their life. 
you don't know that. God, they're too far gone. There's, there's no way, there's no way they could ever be redeemed. God can redeem them. They can come to repentance and repent. They can believe. In fact, when Jesus encounters the disciples, his problem with them is not that they become afraid because I'm not naive to think that you won't be afraid at times, that you won't be fearful. Here's the difference, though. Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for being afraid. He rebukes them for not believing that he would protect them. I've seen fear do a tremendous damage to Christians. I've seen fear and anxiety do much damage to Christians because it often prevents them from trusting, from believing, and obeying him. I've seen people exit marriages that they should have stuck it through. I've seen fear in Christians not live out who they're supposed to be because they're afraid of what others might think. I've seen, I've seen Christians not go overseas or give generously because they're afraid of what it might cost them. I've seen husbands and wives not be honest with one another because of fear of what the other might think. I've seen kids out of fear, worrying about what mom and dad might do to them if they actually tell them the truth, even though the parents already know the truth. I'm living that. I've seen unbelievers not come to faith in that moment because Christians were afraid of what they might think about them, so they did not share the gospel in the divine opportunity they had. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so often the world looks bad and unpromising, But often, you need to realize that the Lord is protecting and providing. He is protecting you from the schemes of the enemy. And there are often things that are happening around us that you'll never even know about that God has protected you from. Mordecai was asleep. He didn't know this plot had been made. He didn't know the gallows had been built with his name on it. He had no idea. So listen in now. If you're you're at home, put that pumpkin spice latte down just for a second. Esther teaches us to not question the providence of God, but believe it. Is God at work? Yes. Does God still care? Yes. Does God still love me? Yes. The fact that you're still alive is evidence of God's inconspicuous providence in your life. Think about this. Haman just so happens to have dinner with the queen and the king. He just so happens to leave happy. He just so happens to see Mordecai. He just so happens to compose himself and go home. He just so happens to have a wife and friends to console him and then give him a suggestion. He just so happens to make a plot to kill Mordecai. He just so happens to go to the office early. He just so happens to hope to see the king. And that king just so happens to invite him in. The king just so happens to not be able to sleep. He just so happens to have the reports of his daily activities read to him. They just so happen to be five years prior and the moment that Mordecai reported His assassination plot, the assassination plot. It just so happens that the king immediately wants to correct this clerical error. It just so happens that the king arrives early to the court. 
It just so happens that he invites Haman into the court. He just so happens to ask Haman what he should do to honor this person who just so happens to be Mordecai, Haman's personal enemy. Mordecai just so happens to hear of an assassination plot. Mordecai just so happens to report this plot. Mordecai just so happens to be ignored for five years but doesn't complain about it. Mordecai just so happens to be asleep and yet God was at work. Mordecai just so happens to have a niece named Esther. She just so happens becomes queen. She just so happens becomes, becomes in, in, in excited about protecting the Jews. She just so happens to come up with a scheme to invite Haman and the king to dinner to make her request. She just so happens to intervene for God's people, who just so happens is the bloodline of the Messiah who comes to save the world. Esther teaches us to not question the providence of God, but to believe it. Today, when you go home, you should be able to look back on your life and say, look at how God was at work moment by moment by moment by moment. The hard and the bitter and the switchback after switchback. God was at work for your good and his glory and your joy. You should be able to look back and do that, church. When you look back, you'll see a patient and gracious redeemer who doesn't let any hurt go to waste, who looks at you even now and says, by God's inconspicuous providence, you're here today. You're watching online right now. And you need to have a moment where you come to faith in Jesus for the first time. The Bible will tell us over and over that when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to be in charge of your life, you get a right to be called his child. You get to be part of this covenant. But for you today, you might be having wondered a little bit, questioning, is God even good? Does God even care? And you're so stuck in this moment that you're not able to see how God has in the past been orchestrating things to give you confidence that in the future he will continue to do so. So maybe today's for you a recommitment to these truths. And then maybe there's some of you who just need to say, God, I, I need help seeing these things. Will you, will you help bring them to my attention so that I can praise and worship you? That I'm going to look to you. Don't question it. Believe him. Will you pray with me? Father, we come now, and Lord, we're grateful for a chance to having open up your word, that God, you just so happen to have us in this text, in this time, in this place. Lord, help us to be sensitive to the movement of your Holy Spirit, to know and to do what you've called us to do. Father, there's somebody in this room that needs to respond to your invitation, but they would not hold on, but they would let go. They would come forward and say, this is where I want to be. I want to give my life to you. Maybe there's somebody in this room that they've just wondered. Maybe today is an opportunity for them to confess that, respond to you, give their life to you, recommit their life. Maybe today, Father, somebody just needs to pray and thank you for how you've, even in the hard, even in the difficult, been with them no matter what. We love you, Lord. We ask you to move and 
the way that only you can move. In Christ's name.